This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website. Showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code KICK to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com and offer code KICK. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Few actors in Hollywood have had the kind of career my guest today has had. In his 50-year career, Malcolm McDowell has starred in over 260 films and television shows, from classics like Clockwork Orange and Time After Time, to his most recent role as an egotistical symphony conductor on the Emmy-winning series Mozart in the Jungle, now in its fourth season on Amazon Prime. Today, Malcolm McDowell regales me with stories about his early years as a coffee salesman in England and his start at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which he describes as mostly drunken gambling and whoring. Malcolm talks about how he came up with the infamous singing in the rain scene for Clockwork Orange and what Gene Kelly had to say about it, and recounts how he got stiffed by the film's notoriously cheap director, Stanley Kubrick. The maestro discusses his philosophy of conducting on Mozart in the Jungle, the best part about shooting season four in Japan, and how the show bravely rebels against ageism in Hollywood. Plus, he remembers working with greats like Peter O'Toole, Laurence Olivier, and John Gielgud. He reveals why he turned down a chance to be knighted, and he talks about the role that made him public enemy number one for Trekkies. Coming up with the brilliant actor and raconteur par excellence, Malcolm McDowell, in just a moment. In his 50-year career, Golden Globe-nominated actor Malcolm McDowell has starred in over 200 films like If, Oh Lucky Man, Time After Time, Star Trek Generations, The Player, The Company, Gangster No. 1, The Artist, and of course, the classic Clockwork Orange, as well as memorable roles on television including Entourage, Heroes, Franklin and Bash, and Mozart in the Jungle, which now enters its fourth season on Amazon. Malcolm McDowell, thanks for sitting down with me. Well, thanks for inviting me. My instinct was to address you as Sir Malcolm McDowell, but I, I read that apparently you turned down a knighthood. Uh, oh, why did you pass that out? I think it's a bit low rent to talk about that. Oh, is it? <laughs> All I will say is that um, my hero was Albert Finney, mm -hmm. not Sir Albert Finney. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the greatest actors who I always respected was um, Paul Schofield. Mm, yeah. And he wasn't Sir Paul Schofield. So I think an actor, especially one that lives in America, we live in a republic. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm still a British citizen. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a British passport. Um, I just think here it's sort of ridiculous, you know, and, and yeah. also a bit pretentious. I don't know. 
when I had Ridley Scott on a few weeks ago, he said the same thing. He said, no, I don't want anyone to ever call me Sir Ridley Scott. I guess he kind of chafes when people actually address him that way. Yeah. Now, you grew up in a working class family in Liverpool. Were you Mm -hmm. anti-monarchists? No, no, far from it. Oh, really? um, My father was a staunch Churchill supporter. Yeah. And a conservative, you know. And um, so I've always been fascinated with Churchill. This year is particularly good for the Churchill lovers, you know, with Gary Oldman's great performance in a wonderful film. I I think it's a, a... it's a really well-made movie and very well-directed. Mm-hmm. It's very different than it is here with regard to World War II. Here, oh, it's it's oh. light years away. But when you go to Britain, it's almost as if it happened yesterday. It still oh, looms yeah. very large in the Absolutely. public psyche yeah. there. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, um, half of London was bombed. And, right. Um, there were, you know, 100,000 people killed or something. I, I don't know the number, but... Um, I know it was pretty high, yeah. civilians. And um, that was just in London. I mean, um, many cities were mm-hmm. bombed. And there was a very great threat uh, that we would be invaded, you know, which would be the first time, I think, since the Norman Conquest. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what I'm talking about. I don't think that Americans can even relate to that idea. I mean, you no. were the only thing keeping the world from falling into flames, basically, because yeah. you could argue that without Britain... We couldn't have had a foothold in Europe, so where would we have even launch an invasion of Europe? We so, may be doing this yeah. podcast in German. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, plaudits to Gary Oldman yeah. for a great performance. Yeah. And in your early years, you worked in your dad's pub. I think I read that you worked in a planter's peanut factory in the UK. You were a coffee salesman and various <laughs> odd jobs. Yeah. You know, I imagine that there were a lot of people growing up with you in Liverpool who probably said going into acting was just a pipe dream for a kid from Liverpool. So how did you decide to take that risk and go for it? I, I, there was never a question, really. Um, really? I always felt that I was just marking time being a salesman. Actually, I was a coffee salesman for Chase and Sanborn, which is the same company that made planters. It was called Standard Brands. I don't know whether they still call that, but... Um, and, uh, you know, I went through a management training thing, and and then eventually I, I was told that the salesman, the sales rep in Yorkshire had disappeared, and, and they needed somebody to go up there pronto just to service it. And so I went up there, and, and literally uh, every place I went – They'd be asking me for, have you got any of those radios, any of those watches that that fellow said? And I go, no, I'm from the coffee company. He goes, oh, yeah, but he sold us watches and he sold us all these things. So uh, obviously he wasn't selling much coffee, but he was selling a lot of um, stolen goods. Put yeah, it that way. he had a side hustle. So it, in, as a consequence of that, I was able to treble, quadruple the sales of coffee over the month without really having to lift a finger. And I became a kind of star salesman, which was completely ridiculous. And then I realized, why am I driving all over the north of England when I can just go with a big pile of pennies from the bank and get to a payphone and just call? And and they put yeah. their orders, and that's what I did. I, and I just 
sat back and read and uh, went to the movies and um, and just worked the system pretty well. Mm-hmm. I remember the movie that I saw that um, really influenced me the most was um, Lawrence of Arabia. I saw oh, that yeah. at the Odeon in Leeds. Yeah, in one Georgia. of my favorites. Was Peter O'Toole someone you admired growing up oh, as an actor? Oh my God, yeah, we yeah. all loved him. I went, eventually I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company quite early on in my career. You know, I think I was 21 or two, probably. Somebody said, oh, well, there's a bring a bottle party up in Hampstead. Why don't we go? I said, yeah, sure. You know, get a bottle of plant, cheap old wine going up. And I remember sitting down on some of the sofa in this apartment. And then suddenly the door opened and there was this Greek God, and it was Peter O'Toole, <laughs> with flaxen hair, uh, jeans tucked into very high boots, and a cigarette in a very long cigarette holder. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, my God, that's a star. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he went around smiling and waving like he was royalty or something, which mm-hmm. he was. Yeah, yeah. Right after the and that it was movie, so it absolutely. Was, it was such mm. an indelible image of Peter. So when I worked with him, it would be fifteen years. Mm-hmm. I reminded him this fact, cause he couldn't remember it all. And naturally, just another party for him. Yeah, but well, that was and probably he lived, when he was he, heavy drinking too. So oh, he yeah. may, well, may, no, may not he, have had he wasn't much of a drinking. memory. It wasn't oh, was not but he was doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that uh, I th- you know he he had a he had a, a very he was very ill with uh, drinking and had mm-hmm. to quit. Yeah, somewhere I heard you describe the Royal Shakespeare Company as quote basically drunken gambling and whoring, right? <laughs> yeah. Can't beat that <laughs> it was when you're that 22. Wild? That's not what we imagine probably here in the United States no. when we think of the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> It, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> and, um, you know, you'd get up at two in the afternoon, uh-huh. go and get a, a sort of breakfast <laughs> lunch, which would be, you know, scrambled eggs, bacon and beans and sausage or something. Mm-hmm. Then walk into the theater, get ready, do your show. Then afterwards... Um, go out stage door and see if there are any girls waiting, you know, <laughs> um, and then choose one and then just yeah. and go and have a drink. And we'd be drinking until oh, two in the morning and then we'd start gambling. <laughs> and then we'd probably get to bed around five or six as yeah. the light was coming up and then get up at two o'clock and start all over again. <laughs> That was my time at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah, fun, but probably hard to sustain, I imagine. <laughs> well, it was fun for a while, but yeah. really that gets old very fast, mm-hmm. you know, but um, and, and I didn't really enjoy it really? much. It, no. And you were part of a generation of young actors who made up sort of this new wave of British acting in the 70s. Uh, who mm. were maybe some of the other people you came up with when you were at the Royal Shakespeare Company? John Hurt. Mm. was there a david warner was a big star mm-hmm. there ian holm one of my favorites in fact his henry v i think i watched every single performance from the wings watching him just mesmerized by his absolute um genius at the text making the shakespeare text 
understandable and believable mm -hmm. and simple. Um, an amazing uh, actor, actually, I, especially in that part. Yeah, yeah, not easy to do, I imagine. To make no. that, I mean, I, I'm no. always amazed at any actor that can take something as eloquent as Shakespeare mm. and make it relatable and simple like that. Exactly. I mean, it was a real eye-opener for me to see that. David was the same way, Warner. You know, he's Hamlet. He was this huge star from mm -hmm. this. And um, we became quite friendly because, uh, and, and I say that, but it was a bit of a surprise because David was a loner. Mm -hmm. He didn't have really very many friends. And I, I like to think I was one of just a handful of friends you know, of his, and, and I literally was, I had like 12 lines in Hamlet and he had, <laughs> he had the, the, the rest of it. I mean, he was, um, had a lot of stuff to get through, but he was, he's a remarkable actor, David. Yeah. I'm very, I think, uh, undervalued, you know, especially in later life. He, he should be in everything. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think. Yeah. Brilliant actor. Uh, yeah. How about like Alan Rickman, Jeremy Irons? Well, Were they kind of in that younger. same they're generation? They're a little bit younger, little younger. than me. Okay. And Jeremy, weirdly enough, came up. First, I heard about him was in um, a BBC television thing, which I was actually offered. Oh, God, what was it? I'd moved to America just, I think, six months before. And they went, You've got to come back to do this. And I went, Nope. <laughs> I'm not going back. I don't want to go back to England mm -hmm. and live in the middle of the pond somewhere. I want yeah. to, either I'm here or I'm there. Yeah. I've moved and that's it. Yeah. And, you know, um, I had a, a wife and a baby daughter, so I didn't really want to do that whole thing of moving yeah. around too much. So, you didn't want to be a big fish in a small pond anymore? You wanted no. to uh, well, have a lot more even, opportunity in America? even that. that right? so, yeah, I mean, it, I did feel, though, that I'd have to start my career all over again, and in a way, mm -hmm. I did. Um, I'm always kind of amused when British actors come to Hollywood because, you know, in Britain, you're just an actor who can play any kind of role. Mm -hmm. You're offered any kind of role, but as soon as you come to America... Hollywood wants to turn every British actor, whether it's oh, yeah. you or Jeremy Irons or Alan Rickman to or any heavy. of these guys, yeah, into the heavy. Right. <laughs> You're an evil boss or an evil wizard or right. the rich right. guy that you right. don't want the girl to end up with but the end of the movie. That's Just, exactly That must right. get old. You've certainly dealt with that. Yeah, I've had a lot of that. But, you know, I've also had other great stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I've never really minded playing heavies. I've mm -hmm. always sort of enjoyed it, actually. But... Um, I've been very lucky because I've had stuff like Time After Time that was, right. you know, a, yeah. a, a part of yeah. whimsy. Definitely not a heavy. Yeah. No. Yeah. In fact, David Warner played the heavy in that. Right. <laughs> and that true. was the first time yeah. we worked together since Stratford. And, and Time After Time has really become a classic over the years, but it, mm. apparently it didn't do well in the initial release. Why, why do you think that was? I know why. I think I know why. Because... Um, they put out, you know, um, things for the audience to fill in, uh, questionnaires, you know. And, mm -hmm. and I asked to see them, and, and the, the questionnaire started off by saying, have you ever heard of H.G. Wells? No. Ever heard of Jack the Ripper? Yes. Oh, this is a Jack the Ripper movie. Yeah. So they sold it huh. as a sort of, um, you know, 
a Jack the Ripper kind of movie and um, <laughs> blood and gore and all the rest of it, which it certainly is. It's isn't. not. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a love story yeah. and, a, and a rather remarkable time travel love story mm-hmm. of a man. Um, H.G. Wells, one of Britain's great writers, who was equivalent, I suppose, to uh, Jules Verne in mm-hmm. France. Feminist. He fought for the rights of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, way ahead of his time way in a lot of, of ways, time. I mean, Before they yeah. even got the vote mm-hmm. in England. They didn't get the vote in England until, I think, 1917 or something like that. And the wonderful thing about the time travel was, you know, they steal his time machine and take him to um, San Francisco, contemporary San Francisco, where he's chasing Jack the Ripper, who's mm-hmm. stolen his machine. And he meets, of course, the modern woman who is yeah. a feminist, who is all the things that he's, you know, been sticking up for. But, of course, when he actually meets it in person, it, it's quite a different thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, isn't that always the way it is, when <laughs> yeah. you finally catch her? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, I know that you're probably just waiting for me to bring up Clockwork Orange, but I'm not going to do that, really. <laughs> no, I'm not I, even thinking about it. You know, I kind of made a deal with myself coming up here that if I got through it and had time at the end, maybe I'd ask you one or two questions, because I'm sure you must get people who just... The entire interview want to talk about Clockwork Orange. Does it get on your nerves that you have to talk about something well, like at the beginning of your career, 47 years ago, you always have to be forced to reminisce? Yes, but, but on the one hand, it can be a little irritating. But don't forget, it's afforded me a great life. And mm-hmm. I really, it's a great movie, no question about it. Sure. And the memories of it are very um, vivid and I still remember it as if it was yesterday. So, um, and it is an extraordinary piece, and and you know, it's the meaning of it has changed through the years. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is actually interesting. And why do kids today? Why do they, you know, pin the the poster up in their dorms and mm-hmm. college and all the rest of it? Well. I, I really don't know the answer to that, but I'll, I'll have a bash. Uh, it's <laughs> one of the theories. You know, when it first came out, well, when we made it, let's mm-hmm. even go back. When we actually made the movie, you know, we made a black comedy. Right, right. That's how we shot it. That's how I played it. And um, gave, it had a heightened sense of style. Mm-hmm. And, you know... You have a rape and a murder, and, and, and you do it to singing in the rain. It's not exactly <laughs> naturalistic, is it? Um, but it's a wonderful way of yeah. doing it. So, Yeah, well, I wasn't even going to get into this right now, but that since you brought up the scene in the rain, hmm. uh, how did that scene evolve? Uh, well, it, it evolved because we were sitting around trying to figure a way of, of doing it um, in the style that we'd shot probably a month or two before mm-hmm. where we'd found a way to to you know do things with a certain heightened style and when we came to this it was rather naturalistically written the boys come in throw bottles of booze through this window and then right they're ransacking uh, the place yeah and, and it's like just absolutely feeble really compared to where we'd been with it and we sat around on a set for four or five days did not turn the camera and Kubrick as he was walking past I was sitting down 
on these steps. As he walked past me, I was getting real bored by this time. <laughs> he walked past me and just said, can you dance? <laughs> Not even, it's just very simple. And I just jumped up and went, can I dance? <laughs> of course I can't dance, but I, I literally just started ad-libbing and, yeah. and go straight into it and hitting the you know, guy on the beat and, and made it comic. I mean, my God, so he pulled me outside, shoved me in his car. We drove back to his house, which was 20 minutes away or something, and he bought the rights. So we could go back. Oh, yeah. He had to buy the license. He had to buy the 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 license, the rights for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I heard somewhere that uh, I guess Gene Kelly wasn't too happy about that, was he? Gene was not happy um, because a year later, you know, when the film opened and it was a big success, and I was sent out to Hollywood um, to do press and stuff. And my minder, said, oh, there's a, there's a party, Mark, and there'd be a lot of movie stars. Do you want to go? And I went, hell, yeah. <laughs> of course I do. You know, I'm from Liverpool, for God's sake. And so um, he took me in and he said, oh, hey, uh, Gene Kelly is here. Do you want to say hi? I went, oh, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> and he had his back to me, and he was tapped on the shoulder, and he went, uh, Gene, I just want to introduce you to Malcolm McDowell. He looked at me like I'd crawled out from under a rock <laughs> and then just walked off, you know, yeah. as I had sort of left my feeble little hand there to shake. And he totally ignored it and walked off. And, and the minder was like, I'm wow. terribly sorry. I went, hey, you know what? Don't apologize for him because I took his moment and rejigged <laughs> it and did it something else with it. He took it really that personally, huh? Well, actually, the truth is, I, so I told this story like 40 years later. Um, we were honoring Kubrick at the Academy. This lovely lady came up to me and said, I'm Gene's widow, Malcolm, and I want to tell you, he was never pissed with you. Huh. He was pissed with Stanley. Stanley. And I went, well, why would he be pissed with Stanley? And he went, she said, because he never paid him. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with the great Malcolm McDowell when we come back in just a moment. Looking to move to the cloud? Don't know where to begin? Check out the Google Cloud Platform weekly podcast where Google developer advocates Melanie Warwick and Mark Mandel answer questions, get in the weeds, and talk to GCP teams, customers, and partners about best practices. From security to machine learning and more, hear from technologists all across Google about trends and cool things happening with our technology. Click to learn more and subscribe to the podcast at g.co slash gcp podcast. Again, that's g.co slash gcp podcast. Today's episode is also sponsored by Grasshopper. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal lives separate. Choose from their huge inventory of local, toll-free, and vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, or out shopping, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. 
Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding to make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app, and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support, all without any long-term contracts. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com slash kick to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com slash kick. And now, back to the show. I always heard that Stanley cheap. Kubrick was very cheap. In very fact, cheap. didn't he screw you out of your royalties he, he on the movie? He tried to. Oh, he'd screw me out of those, yeah. Yeah, I never got paid a thing. but Because um, he was supposed to give you like a, a couple of points on the back end, right? Yeah, yeah. Jeez. I know. That, that's a few million dollars right there. But, yeah. you know, um, yeah. in a way, I got it back, you know, just because it was, I think, one of his great movies, you know. So it was yeah. one of mine, for sure. Yeah, he was a very good producer, you know, and he was damn tight. Well, I did all this voiceover for him. Oh, really? And After we, the fact. We did the voiceover. You know, he was editing, and he called me in. And he goes, I need, we need to do this voice, and... So we'd write it, we'd f- look at the s- book, take chunks, move it around, and, and sort of write th- the narrative. And it was fun to do. It was great fun. And we'd do a piece, and we'd go into the garden. There was a tent, and we'd play ping pong. <laughs> then come back and do another bit. You know, and this went on for two weeks. Really? Because some days we we'd j- wouldn't even really record, just make sure we had all the, you know, the speeches and all the stuff you know for the next day or whatever and um anyway a few months go by and my agent called me and and said Malcolm he never paid you that two weeks for the voice and I went you're kidding (laughs) oh I'm going out there tonight I'll I'll ask him so as I'm about to leave after dinner that night I said by the way Stanley my agent informs me that you have obviously forgotten to pay me the two <laughs> weeks work for the um, the voiceover stuff. He And I swear to God, this is true. He put his hand in his top pocket, pulled out a slide rule, <laughs> looked at it, did some, I don't know, fake calculation or real calculation, <laughs> I don't know. And he looked at me and he said, I'll pay you a week. <laughs> and I went, a week? No, 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 no. It was two weeks. He goes, yeah, but the other week was ping pong. <laughs> and and so I was absolutely, <laughs> as they say in England, gobsmacked and complained to my agent the next day. I re- recounted the story and he went, son of a gun, I cannot believe this. <laughs> So, but it wasn't his money, was it? I mean, no, he had financiers. <laughs> so then, so what did he care? Then, just the um, I, I, you know, I was friendly with the guys at Warner Brothers by this time, and I recounted this, and sure enough, a check came, and they paid it. Oh, really? Yeah. Warner Brothers paid yeah. what he owed you. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Now, at this point, had his kind of famous paranoia and neuroses set in, or was this sort of before all that? You could see the signs, mm-hmm. but but nowhere near what happened when mm-hmm. he was on uh, Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Barry Lyndon, he was crazy. 
I mean, yeah. Well, you probably knew some of the guys who were working I, with him on I that did, too. I did. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, he insisted on um, being called Isaac <laughs> <laughs> because he thought that he was a reincarnation of Isaac Newton. I think. <laughs> really? I really don't know what the answer to that is, but I He's have not. it on a good authority. Yeah. And then from a friend of mine who was, you know, high up. I'm close to the produce, production. I mean, very high. And he was talking and, and couldn't get Stanley out of his bedroom. Mind you, you know, this is what they were in Ireland, IRA bomb threats, whatever yeah. was going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, in those days. Yeah. And um and he said, Look, Stanley, we have to we have to shoot today. And he goes, Don't call me Stanley, call me Isaac. <laughs> Not calls me call me Ishmael. Now I don't know whether that <laughs> yeah. was because he'd taken on this name to throw the bombers of the IRA. I have no idea. <laughs> that is bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. It's that crazy. So it's really crazy. So so is that your favorite movie that you've done? Because you've done like 200 films o- over your entire career. Do, what's your yeah, favorite film? I've done film? a lot. No, I, I always, to that, the answer to that question is always the next one. Okay. I should have said 200 films so far. So far, that's right. Uh, never look back. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think half of them I probably haven't seen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, as an actor, you don't live in the past. Mm-hmm. You just go from one thing to another. So really there's, uh, you're always, if you're working, you're mm-hmm. working on the next one and that becomes mm-hmm. one's focus and, and that's it. Uh, how about a least favorite, or do you not focus on that either? I mean, there must have been one no, that was just torture been, that you hated every minute been of so it. so much crap. Yeah. You, you can't make 200 movies without having a dud here. And there, there are very few yeah. that I've hated, mm-hmm. to be honest. I, I, in fact, I would have to say, even the ones that are so bad, uh, I always found something mm-hmm. to enjoy. Either it was a good restaurant in the location... <laughs> Or there was some fun people I was yeah. working with, or something like that. I don't. Th- I mean, I did a movie in South Africa about Albert Schweitzer. It was just before uh, apartheid fell. It was sort of a very strange experience, and and they were waiting for me for like two weeks. I did another film, and uh, by the time I arrived, um, they'd all been waiting, and you could tell the isolation of South Africa was very apparent in the way... Yeah, in the mid-late 80s, I guess this would have been. Yeah, yeah. It was... They were way behind the curve in Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, acting and stuff and... and Oh, even with that? Very much so. Really? I found that in Russia, too, actually, weirdly enough. Now, you think in Russia, I work with the great, you know, Russian actors, and I thought, wow, this is like... um, you know, this is like working in weekly rep. <laughs> really? Uh, well, wow, what's yeah. with this? Was this and for War and was, Peace or what was this? No, well, no, I did, I did a War and Peace. Yeah, I remember. But um, no, the, I did the most remarkable movie over there called The Assassin of the Tsar. This okay. is one that was never shown in America, sadly, because it's an amazing movie. But it's a Russian film and it's made by a Russian director with a Russian cast. I'm the only... A foreigner in the thing. And really? <clears throat> what year would this have been? 1990. Okay, so after the fall of the Soviet Union. No, no, 
The Soviet oh, wait, Union was still oh, intact. Oh, 1990. I'm sorry. I thought you said 1999. But the wall had come down. Right. Okay. Okay. So this so, was that brief window when U.S. films were exactly. doing kind of before the mafia took it, over and it became too too exactly. risky to make movies there. Yeah. 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 It was yeah, before I remember all that. that. So it, and, and the director, wonderful man called Karen Sheknazarov, moved out of his apartment. And my wife and I, he, he insisted we stay in his apartment, you know. Um, it's really weird because his mother knew my work, really loved it, as he did. And he had this picture of me on his desk, above his desk. I think I, from Caligula or something. And <laughs> yeah. his mother, and, and by the way, the his, fa done, his Caligula, father, huh? yeah, his <laughs> father was one of three advisors to Gorbachev. And, no, and we shot it, it in Russian and English. Mm -hmm. And the poor Russian actors had to learn it phonetically. <laughs> that must have been interesting. And, and I just spoke English. They dubbed me in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I used to say, oh, my God, I can understand him better when he's speaking Russian. Yeah. How do you play against an actor who's speaking English phonetically? Hopefully it must with be... a straight face. Yeah. It was hard sometimes. It was like... What? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not a full stop in the middle of that sentence. You have to wait till you get to the end. It, it was bizarre. You know, one thing that I found surprising about you is when you name your favorite actor and director, you don't say Olivier Hitchcock or David Lean. You named James Cagney and John Ford. I mean, it doesn't mm. get more American and more old school Hollywood than those guys. Huh? No, John Ford was... One of the great, great directors ever that ever lived and shaped and made the film business as we know it. You know, I was brought to him by my friend Lindsay Anderson. Who, oh, really? You met him? Uh, no, oh, I, didn't, oh, oh, I never oh, met him. Oh, you, I, watch, oh, you I was learned about his films. I was introduced okay, I to his movies by him. And he would tell me why they are so amazing. And, you know, I, I once said to him, what do you, why is John Ford such a great director then? And he said, well, Malcolm, there are many great directors, very few poets. John <laughs> Ford was both. Yeah. You're now in your fourth season of Mozart in the Jungle, speaking of Amazon. Yes. And you play this brilliant character, Thomas, who is this pompous but talented symphony conductor who mm. gets sort of pushed up to sort of this bullshit title of conductor emeritus at the New York Symphony Yes, in order to make way for a young Gustavo Dudamel-type conductor. Yeah. <laughs> Given the fickleness of Hollywood, and you've been in this business 50 mm. years, you know, there's always some hot young new star nipping at your heels. Is, is that situation something that you sort of relate to? Well, I, I did, but... Yeah, uh, at, at some point. To be honest career. with you, I don't think the English are quite so into that so it, ageist it i think you know look the thing i've never wanted a career to be like a, a comet mm -hmm. a shooting star you know it, it and, I, and i it was in my early years you know first movie i did i was like wow i mean immediately shot up there. Mm -hmm. but, and then of course kubrick but um I always wanted the career like John Gielgud. Right, where you've career earned your stripes that, you know, and the, a good body of work. A good body of mm -hmm. work where you, you don't make moral judgments on the characters you play. You just play. Mm -hmm. You do what you're offered. That's all you can do. 
and um, you enjoy it and you do the best you can and um, some are good and some aren't. Mm -hmm. And and that's just the way it is. But um, uh, about young people, no. And and, uh, now, of course, I'm thrilled to work with young people. (laughs) In fact, they're all young now to me. Well, what about the flip side of that? I mean, you know, we were just talking about Gilgood and I mentioned, you know, how you were part of this young generation of British actors who sort of rebelled against the old guard and the more traditional Shakespearean actors like... Olivier and Gilgood, yeah. you've worked with both of them yeah. as a young, brash actor, sort of overturning the old conventions. Did you ever feel some sort of generational competitiveness with those guys? Well, it, there may have been a bit from Olivier, but mm-hmm. um, really, how so? He was more. Or was I did he a, competitive I did a, with you? I did a four-hander. Too. He was, of course, much older than I. And, yeah. but he was more competitive with Alan Bates. We did this pinter okay. play and Alan was in it with Helen Mirren, myself and Olivier. And I always felt that he went a little bit after Alan. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much me because I was so young that really I would never <laughs> encroach on anything that yeah. he could do. But I liked him tremendously. He was a very complex person. I, I did like, and, and listen, I'm my work is from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Olivier's is from the outside in. Right. And I, of course, that to me was old hat. You know, it's like, right. oh, God, stick on so a, putty, a, a bit actor. of putty on the nose and, <laughs> you know, have a yeah. limp and all the rest of it. But when I worked with Olivier, he's the only actor to this day that's made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Really? In scene. Yeah. Really? He was stunning in his power. Uh, he was yeah. amazing. He was amazing. And Alan, of course, was in awe of him because he's much closer to Olivier. So mm-hmm. to him, he it was, was a the god. To me, he was like yeah. a god to be ripped down. <laughs> <laughs> but to Alan, there was yeah. no ripping down. It was just, <laughs> oh, my God, it's Sir. He is a genius and... <laughs> And I was like, ah, come on. <laughs> He's just an old guy. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. and this sort of tension between tradition and novelty, youth versus the old guard, is a constant theme, I think, in the show. You know, your character you know, always seems to be struggling to resist being marginalized and to stay yeah. relevant. I, I think it leads to some interesting places for you in this new season. Too. Well, yes, I mean, as an yeah. actor, it's a mm-hmm. fantastic part. Mm-hmm. You know, He's a an emotional cripple in many ways. A great artist, of course, a great musician, and has been a maestro since he was a young man, which, of course, so is a narcissist. I mean, yeah. who goes through life being called maestro without being affected? <laughs> That's true. And, um, you know, he's found love, um, a character played by uh, Bernadette Peters. Mm-hmm. Right. And Bernadette and I have a wonderful time, actually, doing a sort of Pat and Mike, you know, it's it's a wonderful uh, relationship. And, of course, Thomas uh, Fields put out to pasture. And, and I think, in a way, you know, the first season was a really good, um, it was a, a good look at sort of the aging process mm-hmm. and what happens to perfectly um, sane and brilliant people when they age get 
passed over because mm -hmm. of the fact that they happen to be a certain age, which really is ludicrous, you know. Yeah. But um, it doesn't happen so much in music because you get, of course, maestros, conductors who right. are in their 80s. Oh, God. yeah, Leonard Bernstein. Oh, I mean, he God. conducted until well, he died. Van yeah. Karajan and all those guys, you know, the mm -hmm. old, old, old. I mean, in fact, waving your arms around obviously does wonders for the <laughs> circulation size <laughs> yeah and it's such a fun dynamic between you and bernadette peters because yeah. you know it's unusual to see a show spend a lot of time on a romance between two people in their late 60s slash early 70s it's almost it's almost sort of daring if you compare it to a traditional network that's focused on hitting a certain demographic for their advertisers well you it's very hit refreshing. the nail on the head because they said, I think the powers that be said to Paul Weiss a couple of seasons ago, well, let, let's have a love story. And he made the love story between the old farts, you know, <laughs> which they did not expect, which was a genius move yeah. on his part. I mean, people grow old, but they still have a love interest in their lives, whether it's a marriage or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And yeah. With Thomas, you know, his wife died, or what she pushed, I don't know. And, of course, he was cheating on her the whole time. Let's not, you know, let's not uh, couch this in that Thomas right. had any morals. He was, you know, he's an immoral. Yeah, he's a lovable Lothario, rogue. Let's face yeah. it. And let me tell you, when you're up on that podium conducting, mm -hmm. um, and you're looking down, and you're seeing a lot of beautiful legs of violinists and cello players... <laughs> And you just give them the nod. Of course, they're <laughs> it's like being a rock star. Talk about power and the <laughs> sex and power, which is very relevant right now. But hey, yeah, that's a pretty powerful situation. So anyway, he's moved on now and yeah. settled more. Did you have to do a lot of research or rehearsing to go up on that podium? I assume that you must have had to take some conducting lessons before you did that, or you can't just go up there and flail around. <laughs> well, one would assume. Oh, yeah? Uh, <laughs> no? That's not the way I work. Okay. I, I'm more into really letting the music take me where huh. it will. Okay. Um, and, and And I can do this because the conductor is the only person on that stage who doesn't play an instrument. Mm -hmm. Every single conductor is individualistic and different. There's no playbook for conducting. True, true. Um, some are very minimalist. Others, like Bernstein or Von Karajan, are huge. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, George Schulte was a bit like that. So that, frankly, um, as long as you know when to call in the whatevers, but, but they don't do that even. And there's a whole thing, I think, on YouTube. Somebody was telling me, I haven't seen it, but of Lenny Bernstein, who literally doesn't move at all. It, he just looks at the orchestra while they're playing. And just by his look, <laughs> really? they know. That's amazing. That's, that's an artist. <laughs> that's great. In fact, if I can be brave enough, I'd like to do that. But I think people would think, well, he's not doing anything. Right. So I but, don't know whether that would right. really work. But much. that's also similar to what a great actor does. You know, some of the most yeah. memorable moments are usually the ones that are barely perceptible and so subtle. Right. It's almost you don't even really acknowledge, you know, right. uh, other they, than subconsciously what's going on there. Two beats later, you go, mm -hmm. oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. Yeah. 
Well, the show's terrific. Uh, season four looks to be fantastic from everything I've seen. Uh, it's we... my favorite season so far. Yeah. It's really, and, and the stuff in Japan. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I know, so more road fun. trips. That's more fun. More road trips. <laughs> but but the, I was doing some uh, post-syncing, you know, sort of mm-hmm. voice stuff, and really made me laugh because, because I'd forgotten a, a sort of an ad lib that I did with the judges. I'm one of the judges um, adjudicating the uh, conducting, you know, and there's all these young conductors. Haley is one of them. And I'm saying, Haley, she's, oh, she knocked it out of the park. I mean, let's not fucking go into anything else. Well, this, <laughs> this is it. I mean, just let's give her the thing. Let's get on with it. And then the Japanese start in, and I'm going, what, what, what? And he's going, well, you know, the too feminine. I went, oh, what do you mean? Too much ovary for you? Is that it? <laughs> and, and, and I just look at the translators and say, what is the Japanese for asshole? <laughs> and then the whole place goes nuts. You know, <laughs> Papers are thrown, insults, and the whole deal. So it's, That might be the first time that word's ever been uttered in Japan. Everyone's so polite there. <laughs> so true. I assume that wasn't your first time to, in Japan, right? Yes, it was. Oh, it, oh really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. You never... Are, on junkets and stuff, it, it had no, to go to Japan. No, I really never actually made it out there. Wow, it is. It fascinates me because yeah. it's oh. so like us. It's so like America, but it's just slightly different in the most it's, surprising and fun ways. It's Hello Kitty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's all yes. I can say. Yes, yes, yes. In <laughs> little Catholic schoolgirl skirts, <laughs> that yeah. seems to be like the uniform for women in it's Tokyo. Ama- I, I had a great time. Yeah. I liked it. Very, very much. And I particularly liked Japanese women. Mm-hmm. And I just thought the women are such an underappreciated, outside of Japan, mm-hmm. underappreciated or not known. Mm-hmm. And they're so amazing. We had a lot of uh, girls and women working on the set with us. And I was, and everybody from America was impressed. Really? Yeah. Well, it's a great season. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of it. Uh, before we go, uh, among Trekkies, you're known as the man who killed Captain Kirk. Do you still get death threats over that? No, I think I'm celebrated now. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Poor old William Shatner. <laughs> um, I think he still blames me because he missed out on that big payday when J.J. Abrams brought back Leonard. Oh, right, yeah. They couldn't bring him back, and I think <laughs> he was true. really pissed. Well, I'm yeah. sorry, William. <laughs> okay, he'll get I do, over I do like him. He's a lot of fun. Yeah. I've had a lot of fun yeah. with him. Well, season four of Mozart in the Jungle is now available on Amazon Prime. Malcolm McDowell, it's been such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks again to Malcolm McDowell for coming on the podcast. Season four of Mozart in the Jungle is now available with a subscription to Amazon Prime. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.